Wow, what a week it was. The midterm elections showed a decided swing towards the Republicans after the electorate went so heavily Democratic just two years ago. I'll let all the others figure out what that means from a political standpoint. What I want to know is how this affects the automotive industry. Is a Republican House going to want to back off on regulations? What about subsidies for electric cars or the card check that the UAW wants? Well, to get to the bottom of these questions, I've invited two journalists who follow these issues closely to join me on today's program. Edward Lapham is the executive editor of Automotive News, and Nolan Finley is the editorial page editor with the Detroit News. So if you want to get to the bottom of what the midterm elections hold in store for the automotive industry, do not go away. We will be back right after this. From our studios in the Motor City, this is AutoLine. Here now is John McElroy. Welcome to our discussion here in the studio with Nolan Finley, a columnist with the Detroit News, also co-host of the television program, Am I Right? on Detroit Public Television. Great having you here, Nolan. Good to be here, John. Thanks. And, and also Ed Lapham with Automotive News. Great having you here, Ed, John, as well. John, good to be here. Okay, here we are. We had this big election in the United States this mm -hmm. week. We saw, I don't know if you'd call it a landslide for the Republicans. They got the House, but not the Senate. But my question to you guys is, how does this impact on the auto industry, Nolan? Well, I think this election has tremendous impact on the in industry. If you take a look at what happened in the House with, with Republicans regaining the majority, regaining leadership in the House, uh, this Congress beat the automakers to death. They beat Detroit to death. We'll never forget the image of the auto executives being dragged before Congress and, and, and just pilloried. Well, of course, pilloried by Republicans largely. Republicans Senator Shelby, that. who was reelected. But <laughs> now, if you look at who's at, at, at Michigan's clout in this new Congress, there's a possibility of four chairmanship, including the one that most affects the auto industry uh, that's energy and commerce that could very likely go to Fred Upton, who's Congressman not, from Michigan. From, from Michigan, who is certainly not going to be a Henry Waxham when it comes to setting um, environmental policy and regulations from the auto industry. Uh, Dave Camp going to be head of Ways and Means. You may have Candace Miller at Homeland Security, and you may have Mike Rogers at Intelligence. Those wait, 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 wait. Homeland Security, Intelligence, how does that improve? Well, they don't necessarily the affect the auto industry directly, but they give these members a lot of clout when it comes to deal-making on behalf of the, the industry. I think you see now an end of at least the legislative attacks on the industry in the House. Now, you look at the, the other aspect of this election, look west, while the rest of the country was moving more conservative, moving more Republican, California, as it will, went in an entirely different direction, elected Jerry Brown governor. I think Jerry Brown much more likely than Meg Whitman to pursue a radical environmental agenda and continue California's relentless drive to be the place that sets the regulatory policy for this industry. You know, in, in, in Congress, you know, there's something else that the incoming committee chair people will have, and that's investigative um, authority. So mm -hmm. if they want to get involved with investigations, they can do that. That's another thing they'll be able to do. If you look at the sort of leftover legislation that's, that's hanging around, there's auto safety legislation, which now seems dead as a doornail. You have your car check legislation, that seems dead as a doornail in Congress. Um, and you have your cap and trade, which seems dead as a doornail in Congress. But as we've seen, the Obama administration 
has has almost uh, an enthusiasm for for going after these things on a regulatory basis. The executive branch is going to try to expand its power to achieve and accomplish some of these things without going through Congress, which raises the perspective of a showdown between Congress and the White House and eventually could drag a lot of these things into the courts. I think that's a very interesting point, point Ed, and a very important thing to watch. Is, is Barack Obama, is the president willing to take that risk? I mean, the American people sent a big message Tuesday that they don't like either the pace of change or the scope of change. They don't like this big sweeping legislation. Will he try to get his agenda through the back door, through the regulatory process, and risk a real drubbing in 2012 when his job is on the line? He showed a complete disregard for the jobs of his fellow Democrats leading up to this election. Will he be as aloof coming into 2012 when it's his fanny on the line? So which way do you think this is going to go then? Is he going to pursue the regulatory Absolutely. approach? Absolutely. I think. You can read from, from the disregard he had for, for the political um, impact of what he was doing leading up to this election as a pretty good indicator that he sees a bigger mission for himself here. And he seems convinced that it is his destiny to remake America. I don't believe he's going to be stopped by the ballot box this time. But Ed, do you think he'll pursue that if indeed it turns out that it's not popular and the party could get another drubbing in 2012? I do, John, and it's a lot like the story about the scorpion going across the stream on the, on the uh, back of the fox and, and killing it. It's just his nature. I mean, that's yeah. the way he is. Mm. Uh, Nolan is absolutely right. He, he has a vision for reshaping and reforming America, which um, this week seems uh, out of step with mainstream America. Two other interesting things, uh, one of which developed this week. We saw the car companies, GM, Ford, Chrysler, and Toyota, which I find very interesting, coming out and saying, and this was right after the election. So, I mean, I think they read the returns and came out with their statement saying, this next step in fuel economy standards of shooting for 62 miles per gallon is just crazy. It's not affordable. It's not that it's technically impossible. It's just not affordable. And then couple that with all these incentives that the federal government has put out for electric vehicles. What do you guys see happening with those things? Well, I'm glad to see the automakers finally um, getting up off their knees and stop allowing themselves to be kicked around all over the place and saying, okay, Mr. President, okay, Congress, you know, whatever you want us to do. I mean, you, you've got to put a stop at some point to these mandates that are going to drive people out of the cars they want to buy and they want to drive. As you said, maybe you could do it technically if you make the car small enough and light enough and unattractive enough, but you have to have a marketplace. And they are regulating Americans out of the marketplace. At, 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 with fuel costs what they are today, Americans don't want to buy those cars. You know, and John, it's like the old maxim in the auto industry. You know, you can change the size of the, the can, you can put a different label on it, but if at the end of the day the dog doesn't want to eat the dog food, you're out of business. Right. And in, until gasoline hits a certain level, Americans aren't going to want to buy those vehicles. I, I agree totally with you guys on this point because we've seen that the American public is not buying these small cars in the numbers that the auto industry needs them to buy them. And these are terrific little cars. There's nothing wrong with them at all. I think the Ford Fiesta is, a, is an example of that kind of vehicle. The Chevy Cruze is another example of a very good car, but it's not the main part of the market. But to your guys' point, people get religion in this country when it comes to buying cars. 
when the price of gas goes up. But I don't see this Congress at all moving Absolutely to raise not. the gas price. Or any Congress. They just don't have the courage to do that. And that's what it'll take to make the policies they want and the policies they're enacting work. You've got to create a market for these small cars. And it, it, it irritates me no, to no end to hear the president, to hear members of Congress stand up and say, well, when Detroit makes the cars people want, they'll, they'll um, succeed. And now saying, well, Detroit is finally making the cars people want. People are still buying the cars they've always bought. Detroit's making them better. They're making them more attractive. But they're still big sedans. They're still SUVs. They're still trucks. It's still the large, comfortable vehicles that are dominating this market. Detroit hasn't changed that substantially in its model lineup. We saw John Dingell, a big supporter of the Detroit Three and the UAW, win re-election. It looked uh, a whole lot closer than any of the other elections have been. But Ed, he's been such a supporter of the industry. Has he lost clout with the Republicans taking control of the House? Well, everybody who is now a member of the minority party in Congress has, has lost clout. He, you know, he lost in the showdown with... Uh, Congressman Waxman. Uh, two years ago. Two years ago. So, you know, I mean, his power was was diminished. Uh, in that he uh, knows the issues involved with the auto industry, he might turn out to be one of the guys who can make a deal in the middle if and when needed. And he has a very good relationship with Dave Camp. He did not have a good relationship with the Democratic chairman of that committee, Henry Waxham. I think he will be more effective in working with Camp than he ever was in working with Waxham, he may have actually gained clout or regained clout in this in this changeover because Dave Camp, or I'm sorry, Fred Upton, because Fred Upton is going to be chairman of that committee if that happens. We know that uh, another thing that uh, the UAW has been pushing, and not just the UAW, but all unions, has been what they're calling the Employee Free Choice Act. Uh, it gives unions a number of things, but the big thing that they've been after is a card check, i.e where they can organize a company or organize a plant simply by having people sign a card that they'd like a union instead of having a secret ballot where people can vote on whether they want a union or not without somebody standing around looking over their shoulder about it. Uh, it's never been brought up for a vote, is my understanding, even though there's been a tremendous amount of support amongst the Democrats. Is, is this thing totally dead? You mentioned that it is, Ed, but do you see any hope of this thing in, coming In up? Congress, it's dead. There's no way it's going to happen in this next Congress. But that doesn't mean that the Obama administration won't find some backdoor way to try and sneak it in through, through regulation, through, uh, for example, the Labor Department or, or one of his other tools. And what, what card check does is tilt the, the playing field toward labor. He's already doing that by stacking the National Labor Relations Board with very labor-friendly members. Uh, they're putting in place policies that favor unions and organizing drives. Uh, I think, as, as Ed said, watch the back door because that's where this, this, will, this policy will come in. And, you know, I think in the end, um, you're still going to have labor unions with strong appeal to public employee workers but not much appeal to the private sector, no matter what this administration does uh, to help labor in, in their organizing drives. Cap and trade is another one that you mentioned, Ed. Highly controversial topic. Do you see this as dead as well? In Congress, absolutely. But is it something that the EPA might try to get its hands around and deal with? Absolutely. That wouldn't surprise me a bit.
already being done. The EPA is already implementing the major elements of cap and trade. It, it, it is almost impossible, it is impossible in this country now to build a new baseload coal plant and we desperately need them, particularly if we're gonna have electric cars. And it's also becoming impossible to retrofit one to keep it online when its license expires and, and when, it's, um, when, it become, you know, when it's time to update them. Uh, they're already on a full frontal attack on, on coal and coal-produced electrical power. I think he's, you know, that one's already out the door. Isn't cap and trade, though, an approach to the regulatory process that conservatives should, should support in the sense that it provides a market mechanism to control emissions rather than just uh, an edict, a fiat that says that you have to reduce that, them? Any major policy, any major policy that changes the economic landscape in the country as much as that one does or as much as healthcare does or, or card check or whatever should be done by the people who are accountable to the to the voters and not to the not not by the bureaucrats. This is Congress's job, and unfortunately, I think the House will make a real effort to bring all that back inside Congress. But remember, they've got to get through a, a Senate that's still in Democratic hands and a president uh, who is very likely to veto anything uh, that of that nature that comes to his desk. But I would expect that if the Republicans agree that there's still more work to be done on cleaning up the air, reducing our dependence on foreign oil and the like, that a cap and trade approach is much more of a market-based approach than just issuing regulations that say thou shalt do this. Maybe, John, but I think, I, I think that when you look at the economy and, and you look at the possible negative effect, uh, effect on economic growth of doing something like that, the emphasis is going to be on creating jobs. It's not going to be on looking at longer-term solutions, things that we can delay maybe for another two years or four years and deal with one of the key issues, which is getting people back to work in this country. And if they focus on anything else but that in Washington, there won't be one of them left in 2012. But again, I mean, if you guys are in favor of raising the gas tax, what's the difference? Well, I'm in not terms saying I'm in favor of raising the gas tax, but if you're going to mandate small cars, uh, then you better create a market for them. You better have the courage to do that through a higher tax gas. I would rather Washington stay out of the auto business altogether. Let the marketplace drive consumer choice. You know, when you look at the Obama administration and, and, and what Congress has been for the last two years, and you look at even the Clinton administration, both strong pronouncements about, about the need to improve fuel economy, clean up the environment, neither one of them had the political courage of their convictions to do the one thing that would drive Americans to smaller vehicles, and that's to raise the, the tax on Gas well, as I keep saying, no politician will raise the gas tax because we, the people, will throw them out of office yeah. the second that they do. And we should do the same thing when they put onerous regulations on businesses that kill jobs and that depress economic growth and development. Nolan, <clears throat> excuse me, Nolan, you raised the issue of uh, Jerry Brown in, uh, in sure. California and uh, pursuing probably a more aggressive environmental agenda. Uh, the California Air Resources Board, which is essentially the EPA for California, has driven much of the fuel economy and CO2 legislation on cars. Do you see this going even more aggressively than it's been so far? I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine it could get more aggressive. I think it'll continue in that direction unless the courts step up here and say, look, this is a clear violation of the Commerce Clause. You cannot allow a state to set regulatory policy for the whole country. 
I mean, that is a federal function, and the courts ought to have, have put a, a, a damper on that from, from the beginning. Instead, they've enabled California to continue to do this. Ed, you see it the same way? I do. I, <coughs> you know, I, you, you never know what they're going to do in California. I've That's been right. amazed over the years trying to think, well, logically, they wouldn't do that. You know, you never know. You get a polit political movement um, that, that says that they want it, then they'll do it. You know, the one interesting thing was that, of course, they killed the marijuana initiative out there, so. You, you would have expected that to go through. I, but I, I did. They <laughs> act even when it's against their own interest. I mean, they're not building any cars in California anymore because of these regulations, because of these policies. It's a lot of good jobs that have left the state, and yet they just keep throwing these regulations on. They keep attacking the industry, keep ta attacking manufacturing and business in general. They're going to be left out there with no industry of any sort. There's a lot of controversy over China these days. Politics aside, even as it impacts the auto industry, we've seen the Chinese chop off exports of rare earth metals, which are critically important to making hybrids and electric cars. We see the, the Chinese saying, uh, we're going to give incentives for electric cars and plug-in hybrids, but if it's a foreign branded vehicle, we're not going to provide you with incentives. Even if it's manufactured in China, Toyota just announced they're not going to build the Prius in China for this very thing. How do you think this new Congress might take up these, these kinds of issues with China? Well, I don't think this new Congress is going to allow a trade war to ensue, and a trade war would be exactly the worst thing that could happen at a time when our economies are so intertwined and when we're trying to recover from, from recession. I think you raise a good point about the rare earth minerals. I don't think China is going to allow the exporting of resources to create a battery industry in Michigan or anywhere else. Likewise, the South American countries that control those, those minerals, those limited supplies of minerals, are going to want to use those minerals to manufacture the, factor the batteries to sell to us. So I think Michigan has to be realistic in what the potential for battery building really is here if, those, if it can't get access to the materials. China, what do you see Congress doing about China, especially as it impacts the auto industry? Yeah, you know, I hate to be pessimistic, but I don't see much happening. We all know there are some things that need to be done. No one's right, wrong time for a trade war. There is no good time for a trade war, but this would be particularly devastating to, to have it now. But, you know, there are some, some cogent arguments made about um, the nature of the trade relationship with China and the things that we've allowed China to get away with and, and the currency manipulation, other things that worked our disadvantage. Uh, unfortunately, that's not up to the Republican uh, House to do anything about. That has to come from the administration and from the Senate, which is, which is the body that ratifies the, the agreements. Interestingly, though, a fair trade was a real issue with the Tea Party movement. And that, on that issue, they're very much aligned with Democrats and, and with liberals. They are not necessarily free traders. They are not happy with the uneven trading field, uh, field between here and China and other countries. So that could provide a little pressure on this new Republican majority. Well, let's continue talking along those lines then, because the Obama administration is trying to finalize a free trade agreement with South Korea. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the large objections to signing such a treaty being that Korea, South Korea exports so many cars to the United States and we have a, a bare trickle that get in there. And uh, I know some people say, well, that's because the, the big three don't buy, build the kind of cars that the, 
the South Korean consumer wants, but I'd point out, well, the Europeans do, and the Europeans don't sell uh, that right. many cars over there either. Where, where do you see the free trade agreement with South Korea proceeding? Well, I, I think that it's not going to um, move quickly. You, you do have the inequities. You have the, the, the imbalances. And, you know, it's not like they can, you can go and, and buy these knockoff cars in the Itaewon. There are vehicles that are produced, for example, the Ford Fiesta, for example, the Chevy Cruze, that are perfect for that market. So, you know, until South Korea comes to, you know, a more logical, rational approach to, to evening out this imbalance, I don't think it's, I think it's going to stay stuck. I think if you take this, these agreements as a whole, the one with South Korea, as well as the one with Colombia, they, they, they produce net positive results uh, for the country, uh, for the entire country. I believe if you're going to get this economy movement moving again, you have to do more of those free trade packs. NAFTA has taken a lot of heat in this part of the country, but overall, it's been a net positive uh, for the United States. Well, that's your opinion, but what do you think the Congress is going to do in terms Senate, of that? I don't think he's got the votes to get to get no. it through the Senate, it's going to be a tough sell. Uh, I'm not sure he's going to have as much control or influence over his own party uh, uh, over the next two years. So it'll be interesting to see. Another topic that we got to touch on, car dealers, uh, especially as it uh, impacts the, the dealers that General Motors and Chrysler shut down. Ed, as you know, there's been lawsuits, there's been all kinds of talk of trying to get them reinstated. Do you see this election affecting that process? I, I, I don't, John. Now, to say that, Three of the four um, dealers or former dealers who ran for Congress against incumbents were elected. So there will now be six dealers or former dealers in Congress in the new incoming Congress, the largest number ever of, of, of dealers in Congress. But I don't think it's going to make any difference. You know, there were 30-some legislators who signed a letter uh, asking GM not to proceed with closing the, uh, the final 500 dealerships uh, a, a week ago to no avail. General Motors is moving on. I think uh, there may be investigations. You know, it's one of the things we talked earlier about the committees looking into things. They may look into that. They may look into things related to that. They may look, they may use the GM IPO and, and ultimately next year the Chrysler IPO as a way of reopening that whole question. There is a backdoor way to get into all that stuff. But it, the difference for, for the dealers who are been put out of business. I, I don't think there's anything to do other than to say a, a, a prayer at the graveside and move on. They're gone. Yeah, I think there'll be a temptation because the dealers are so influential at the grassroots level. But I think the overall sentiment in this Congress and of the American people is for the government to untangle itself from the auto industry, not get deeper involved in its decision making. And, and frankly, some of the Democratic members were the were the big backers for the for the dealers when they went into our, wanted the arbitration. John Boehner is going to be the speaker. Voted against that. He voted against yeah. several of the issues because it was part of a bigger bill. You know, whereas Nancy Pelosi, his predecessor, supported it. So, you know, it's not it's not as if all of a sudden there's going to be a a, a free enterprise movement to exalt the poor. Uh, U.S. auto dealer. Ed just raised a good topic a moment ago, the IPO that GM's mm -hmm. going to do uh, in a matter of weeks and Chrysler presumably next year. Do you see this election impacting that? I don't see the election impacting that. I'll be curious to see how investors react to that IPO. I mean, you, surely they haven't forgotten what happened to the last batch of GM owners 
and investors. They were treated rather shabbily by the federal government and by the courts. What confidence do you have as an investor that you won't be treated the same way if these country, companies fall into um, trouble again and the government rides to the rescue? Um, and I would think that's a very, very risky buy. Do you see the government riding to the rescue if GM falls flat on its face again? Well, not, not, not now, <laughs> not after last Tuesday, but if you're an investor, there's no certainty in that marketplace. Yeah, how much tarp dough is there left over? <laughs> uh, I would assume that at this point, probably not a whole lot of tarp no, yeah. money left. But Nolan Finley, Ed Lapham, thanks so much for coming in and giving us your perspective you, on what's Good gone on with this election and how it might have affect this, this automotive industry. Appreciate it. I'll be back in a moment with some closing thoughts. The bottom line in today's discussion seems to be that the automotive industry probably gained some clout after these midterm elections, but it still faces headwinds from a political point of view. And make no mistake, while the Republicans were the big winners in this round of elections, they could easily get thrown out in two years' time, just like they were thrown out two years ago. So the automakers better not burn any bridges as they fight for their legislative agenda. It could come back to bite them. In fact, it'd be pretty smart for the auto industry to outline the kind of business environment it would like to see that would help it generate jobs, lots of jobs. I think they could find agreement on both sides of the aisle on that one, and it could be pretty powerful if the auto industry was able to formulate its own vision of what it needs to move forward, rather than constantly fighting a rear guard action against regulation. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. For all of us here at AutoLine, thanks for watching. We'll see you next week.